My very first guest on Jim Questions Everything is Samantha Reichardt, a veteran educator and instructional coach based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, at the outset of this interview, I had asked Samantha had she always wanted to be a teacher. And what I discovered is that destiny does seem preordained for many teachers. But more than that, we also discover how the struggles we endure and the mistakes we make can serve as the foundation upon which our destiny really becomes real. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation with Samantha. It's forced me to ask questions about my own destiny and has me wondering, will I ever be done building my own foundation? So with that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Samantha Reichel. You know, what's interesting is I came up with the name Jim Questions Everything in part because I have this self-aware profile, if you will, of being a white cisgender male who's relatively successful. And yet I'm still really struggling with how to make sense of the world. So in some ways, it makes sense to start with you as a teacher. I'm really glad you're here. Well, thank you. Did you always want to be a teacher? Yeah, so it was, well, you know how when you're kids... You have these jobs that you want to do, which people like look back and laugh. So after ballerina and then stewardess, <laughs> uh, became teacher, but it was really, truly um, destined for me in that my grandfather was the first person in his family to ever go to college. They're a coal mining family. So he was supposed to work in the coal mines, but out of, you know, what, seven children, my great grandfather recognized talent in him. He's an amazing pianist and sent him to college. So he went to college and became a history teacher in Randolph, New York. And my father went to that school that his own father taught at, and they all determined that teaching is the best career for Samantha. So growing up, they recognized little things in me of always, you know, wanting to show people how to do things, teaching young students. And then I hit a roadblock in my educational career around third, fourth grade. Interesting, right? To be so young and have a roadblock. Yeah. Did you know it was a roadblock at the time? Yeah, I did. I definitely did. I went, my parents had to separate and I went to move in with my father and I was in North Carolina in third grade, going in fourth grade, beginning of fourth grade and moved to New York. Well, their fourth grade is, was much far advanced than I had been at in North Carolina. I also didn't have a lot of like homework support and help. So I remember going to fourth grade there and almost failing fourth grade because I couldn't, I didn't know my multiplication facts by heart, you know, even telling time I had struggled with all these different things. So after that roadblock, I had some teachers that weren't really caring because now is this child. So I grew up in this country area where a child of divorce. And at that time, there wasn't very many who had children. Right, yeah. Especially someone who now lived with their dad and not their mom. Oh, man. So let's just unpack that for a second. So first off, you're from the South, which is strange for upstate rural New York. You're a child of divorce and you live with your dad. I mean, yeah. none of those things are normal in rural New York. And I know that because I grew up in rural New York. And not only that, but I also had red hair. <laughs> wow. So you're truly an exotic creature in... <laughs> fourth grade. Yeah. All kinds of things. And you, what's interesting is you said your teachers were, didn't really 
Mm-mm. Exhibit a lot of caring, I guess. Is, no, kind of uh, like, oh gosh, we get her. I remember the fourth uh, grade teacher, my dad tells me, now I didn't know this, but they were going to fail me. She called my dad for a meeting and he pulled out big guns. You know, he pulled out his dad. <laughs> sit down and talk teacher, with the principal yeah. and let's negotiate. We'll work with her over the summer. And so they did end up passing me, but not because necessarily that teacher went above and beyond. So one thing I do remember is the teachers that I came from were very caring, loving, and kind. Maybe they recognized the home situation I was in wasn't a, like as, as it should have been. So maybe that's why. But I just remember this caring, loving environment to, you know, this cold, difficult, way far advanced. And I had never experienced anything like that. So I let, recognized as the years passed, so sixth, seven, uh, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, my middle school time, I spent a lot of my time also helping students who didn't quite understand, didn't quite comprehend. Again, these teachers seem to have this trend of, you either got it or you didn't. And if you didn't, it's not my fault, right? I tried to teach it. You didn't learn it. So that also became a fire in me of accepting this, you know, career chosen that was chosen for me is actually, you know what, this might be right because I want to help. And I have a talent at helping those who don't quite get it and by being patient and understanding and maybe explaining it in a different way. You mentioned, say, time being an issue. Was it a math issue? Was it a literacy issue? Was there something else? happening there could have been any number of things, I suppose, but what did you looking back come to find was at the root? Yeah. Um, so interesting, right? It was told that I had an issue with math. So then I held these uh, disappearing mindset around my ability to do math my whole life until now where I'm recognizing I actually am very mathematically inclined you know, I love data. I love numbers, crunching numbers, analyzing things. And it was always told to me, well, you just struggle with math. It's okay. So the was real that, reason- Was that because you struggled with math and that's okay because you're a girl? Probably. Absolutely. Redheaded girl from North Carolina. So yes, really expect and, you to get math. And everything else, like I could do well. So you're also allowed to have one thing that you're not good okay. at. <laughs> and, right. and so we just claim to math, but- in actuality, I struggled in it because I didn't have help at home to do my schoolwork, to do my homework. Whereas reading, if you can read well and read often, then you can fudge any reading test you take, right? Context, social studies tests, science tests, you might memorization more there, but with math, you have to know how to read these numbers and compute them. And I didn't have that support, that extra help necessary. So I was grade levels behind. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I find I was able to bluff through a lot of coursework, especially in later high school and in college in particular. And I think I've told you this story before that I survived entry-level Spanish in college because I was able to be a good writer and poor interpreter of that writing. So I was an English major, have become, you know, proficient writer and certainly a reader. And that's actually what got me through Spanish was not the ability to describe the painting, but to interpret the painting. And my limited Spanish kind of gave way to my ability to write flowery language. So I totally bluffed. But math, it's harder to bluff in math. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost math's very factual. <laughs> it's very factual. You can get it wrong. <laughs> Although, you know, I have to say, the current math with my kids, I feel like I do nothing but get it wrong. And I, you know what's interesting? I actually started college as a math major. Oh, wow. So I went to school to be a high school math teacher. 
which is crazy given that I don't teach and I can barely count to 10. I wonder why. Well, I, I have a few reasons why. One is when I went, when I started calculus in college, uh, I had never taken it before, but I had been in all honors in New York, felt pretty good about myself. Well, every kid in that first class had already taken calculus and they were just doing it as a refresher. So they were breezing through and the professor just taught to the, the level where everyone but, but myself was sitting at. So I, I didn't have an earthly clue what was happening. Meantime, I was having a ton of fun in my writing classes. And what I realize now is that I had set myself up to be a math teacher from about eighth grade on. Like, mm -hmm. I really admired my ninth grade math teacher. A bunch of them were basketball coaches, which I loved playing basketball. And these guys were great. And I just wanted to be a high school teacher, teaching math, coaching basketball. And that's just carried that momentum into college until I realized, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't love math. Maybe I want to be a reader and a writer. And that's what happened to me. So you as a student did carry that education DNA with you into middle school. You started helping others. Did you do that all the way through high school as well? I did. I did. Yeah. In, in I, tutoring or just being a know, friend or? Being a friend and formal support and just helping some of my very close friends that struggled with writing, explaining to them, could almost look at reading and writing in a formulaic way, you know? So again, going back to this mindset around not doing math, but yet looking at everything in a mathematical way yeah, yeah. and just giving them those tips and tricks of this is how you write an essay. Super easy. It's just, you write a topic sentence, then the beginning of each of your paragraphs, then a conclusion sentence rewording. And there we go. So yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it and it was easy for me. So I look back at that feeling I had of that educational transition I made and I know I didn't want to feel like that again. So pursuing a career in something I was great at, you know, one of the top three students of my class, always on the language arts um, regents exams, the writing exams, always getting those accolades. It just made sense to go ahead and just keep pursuing it to do what you're already good at. Being a teacher was easy though. I mean, it wasn't just the fact that you knew the material, it's that it came naturally to you to educate others, even at that young age. And to manage people. So, <laughs> to manage would, people, personalities, yeah. Yeah, I would look back and just think of what did my dad do to get you know me to behave and then use those techniques at the beginning of my career, which are ineffective. A lot effective, a lot ineffective ways, but it immediately worked. So. Whereas I was still growing in my skill as a teacher, I appeared from the outsider looking through the window at you. I had my class was sitting, everybody looked like they were learning. So people would just walk past because I could manage a classroom. But of course we know that doesn't mean just manage classrooms, I mean kids are really learning. So it took you know some while for me really to perfect and hone in on my skill of being a great literacy instructor. Yeah, interesting. Let's talk about that a little bit. So. You knew from early on and you, you were going to be a teacher and you went to school, that all panned out and you're in the classroom. And what you're talking about now is the fact that you're in the classroom. And so despite what I imagine a lot of teachers go through, if I think about it, you know, a lot of teachers do feel like they have it in their DNA and they probably have some event or some path that they chose or was chosen for them by destiny to become a teacher. And like, you know, I had the pivot in early in college. I mean, I ended up being a uh, certified high school English teacher. So my pivot wasn't super dramatic. But, you know, it feels like a lot of folks 
enter into schools of ed, they go through and, and it's not the four year journey. It's actually more like an eight or 10 year journey to becoming a teacher. Cause they started like you did in middle school and they carry it through. And then you have this oh moment where you're in the classroom. It's just you and the kids Were you, I never had that. I, I did my full student teaching and then I went into a different field of work. I worked with homeless teens in a totally different setting. So I never had the door closed behind me staring at a bunch of kids. What was that like? What was your first day of teaching like? I guess that's what I'm asking. What was yeah. your first day of teaching like? I, I failed miserably. <laughs> Just total failure. After all that. Yeah. Like, you know how you say gym questions everything? Yeah. I think one, one part of my life is I fail at everything, but I actually enjoy failing at everything. I have a positive growth mindset. So I make a lot of mistakes. And that's like a mistake that I need to stop telling people that I make mistakes so much, but we'll get, we could get to that. But yeah, we, that's I pretty make, meta, but yeah, I see. Very meta. I, get, I make a lot of mistakes. And the first thing I did right there, roll call. I was so excited to take attendance to get sure. to know my students. So I was teaching eighth grade at East Union Middle School. And I go to the first name on the list and my student, her name was J-A-M-E with an apostrophe. And then her last name was like, you know, Adams. And this is the first time that I had ever come across a name that, that had an apostrophe in it. And so when I went to look at it, my dumb self thought that they forgot the S. So there was apostrophe instead of the word James. Ah. I said, James Adam. And the very first thing, this one student, she was right in the front and she goes, it's Jamia. And crossed her arms and sat right back. Mm. Oh, okay. So I write out the name. The next student, same thing happened. Um, I mispronounced the butchered the first name terribly. And so I learned by the third name, let's just go by last names. <laughs> you know, I heard the head tilt when you said it's Jamia. Oh, yes. Yeah, that posture must have been something I'll else. I'll never forget it. I'll yeah. never forget it. And my face, you know, I'm very pale, pale, pale skin. So <laughs> my face just went instantly red. Yeah. I remember a kid in the back saying they called me a Barbie, which I thought that would be a compliment, but apparently it's not a compliment. So he's like, oh, the Barbie's turning red. And I look, and like you just said, I just look at the sea of eyes. Like, okay, yeah. Samantha, what are you going to do? But it ended up very positive story. I, I never cried that first year. So I kept, I kept it with me. In the classroom, you never cried. In the we're on the way home. I really, oh, no. I told you, I enjoy the fact when I make mistakes like that, just to make it better and to make sure it doesn't happen again. And those mistakes, like I said, mispronouncing, butchering people's names had never happened to me again from that moment. You know, I became wise enough to always look for a part of the name that I could pronounce or be okay to ask, what is your name? I want to get it right. How do I spell your name? You know, and that's lead, led me. Another thing is having a journey and teaching students to love their names. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Interesting. To love their names. So my last name's McVetty and we constantly get called McVitie, McVitie all the time. Or what we often get is people don't believe me when I spell the name M-C-V-E-T-Y. And they'll say, is it one T or two? And I'll say it's one T. And literally I've had people say, are you sure? sure? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I have my name down, but I imagine it's interesting. So you're talking about, if I may forgive me, but these are students of color primarily is what I'm, what I'm interpreting. Is that yeah. a fair interpretation? 
Yes, yes. African-American and Latino students were mostly my first and second year of teaching. Absolutely. And I had, again, another mistake of thinking I was teaching a diverse school in a diverse classroom. And so one lady politely told me, they're not diverse. They just, just don't look like you. Yeah, just because yeah, yeah. they're, they're not white doesn't mean they're diverse. You're not teaching yeah. in a diverse school. You're teaching in a segregated school. In fact, that school I was teaching at was the first desegregated school in North Carolina. The first desegregated school in North Carolina. Yes. Interesting. By the yeah. way, I should note that, I, that you moved from North Carolina up to New York. Mm-hmm. And now you find yourself teaching for the first time back in North Carolina. Yes. Uh, in the first desegregated school in the entire state. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What a year that must have been. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful just learning. And again, um, because I could manage a classroom, and, and I'll be honest, with the principal, she said she was the white woman. She was just very taken aback. She was an older white woman. She was very taken aback at my parent prowess in my natural instinct because I came on with another lady who was a teacher in New York who moved to the South because there's this great, you know, exodus of New Yorkers coming into the South. And she was, had teaching experience, was an older lady and she was struggling. I mean, she had, you know, higher students, you know, students supposedly that have been scoring higher on these exams. And I had students that supposedly struggle with reading. And she told me, she's like, I just so surprised to see this little white lady in there teaching the students. <laughs> and it just created this fire in me of, wait, so you are agreeing with this lady's narrative across the hall from me, that students are going to be an issue for her, but she should be able to do it just because she's white, but not for me. And so I had opportunities after that year to teach in schools that were all white, just like where I grew up in in New York, all white. Um, and I purposely chose not to because honestly, I knew the person to the left of me and the person to the right of me would have this idea about these our students and about what they could or couldn't do and about their role in it, which really created this passion. Me Again, that was that, I think that principal after that year, she was gone, you know, and out of there, but... It was very eye-opening experience to see that I was going to be a brand new teacher would be the one having to advocate for her students. Yeah, really, because you had found yourself in a culture where, and I've heard you talk about this in other settings, where expectations were pretty low for Mm -hmm. kids of a particular background, of a particular skin color. And I have to imagine that no one ever said, well, because these are African-American and Latinx students, they're not going to do well. And yet, that's probably what they were saying, isn't it? Yeah, well, maybe not, not everyone, but I mean, it feels like that, no, that implication it hovered over the school. Um, I'll never forget this, this student. I would, so I got really passionate. And at that year, being white privileged, I learned a whole lot of things about the history that I was never taught. So I wanted to teach my eighth graders that I want to teach them the truth mm. about Christopher Columbus. I want to teach them the truth about this romanticized idea of slavery, especially now that I'm in the South in the first desegregated school. And one student, she opted out of the lesson. She said, I can't do this. Again, a beautiful African-American girl whose name was Desiree would let teachers call her Desiree. That's messed up, right? I, you're Desiree, you're going to, but she felt very uncomfortable that I was teaching this content. I look back and agree now, I'm sure I was very forceful and excited and just going in so people, students could learn. But she said to me, it's hard because 
My great, great, great grandfather was owned by that teacher's over there's great, great grandfather. Stop. Are you serious? Yeah. So where I was teaching was in this place where, I mean, people had, did not often move away from that area after slavery was supposedly ended and stayed on as sharecroppers and on such. And so these families had stayed there and have roots in this area and knowing each other and knowing each other's history. Right, right. So when I learned that, it was like, no wonder that, like I said, it's a cloud over this school, over these individuals about what are these students can or can't do. And inside of that was all kinds of assumptions that you were making about your journey to understanding. And I find, so stay with me here, because I find this is kind of interesting. Over the last several years, I've really worked hard on my unconscious biases, on the language I use, just trying to get to a woke status. And I feel pretty good about that. Mm-hmm. One thing I learned along the way, though, was that my journey is not unique mm-hmm. and it comes late. So all the colleagues who I wanted to tell them how woke I was <laughs> could easily look at me and say, well, it's about time. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting how we go through this process of self-awareness, you know, stemming from broader awareness. And you think, boy, I got to tell everyone, did everyone know about this? Yes. Did everyone know about Tuskegee? What, or or uh, did everyone know about, you know, 1619 and what happened in Texas? And you start to pay attention and yeah, people did know about it, Jim. You just weren't paying attention. Or the educators and the adults in your world, either they didn't have it or they weren't paying attention. So it's just really interesting to me that you're looking back now and, and I hear inside of what you're saying, like the things that you just, the self-awareness that you lacked for as, for as forward and as progressive as you were, especially mm-hmm. relative to your peers, I'm hearing that you're, you're also sensing like, you know what, maybe I didn't pause and take a breath mm-hmm. and check my own assumptions. And that oh, must come God. up a lot, especially yes. for teachers. Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, it's, new, new teachers are just, I'm, I'm, painting broad brush strokes here, but wide-eyed, wanting to save the world, feeling like they've just been energized with a degree and a certificate, and they come in and they can't pronounce the first name in yeah. the grade book. That's a pretty humbling experience. Very, very. What, what would you, you know, what would you tell yourself now? Like if you could go back in time and you were to say, you know, Sam, you need to pay attention to the following. What would you do? What would you say? That your heart's in the right place. <laughs> No, that sounds corny, but just to yeah, say yeah. back to myself, you've got this and you're doing great. That affirmation, like you truly are reaching kids. Did you um, struggle with that? I, I did because nobody would come in and tell me anything, oh. you know, which is, which is a great thing about teachers, right? Is we're either told you're amazing. You don't need me or you need a lot of support here. Let me hold your hand. Um, and so being first, second year teacher, and then when I transitioned to my new school, same thing, only getting two, maybe three, what do you call them? Walkthroughs a year where people walk through, sit for an hour and have a meeting and grade you on their scale. I was doing amazing work, apparently. Uh, <laughs> In that one hour out of 180 days. Yes. Amazing. And so I, I did grapple a lot with, you know, am I really effective? Is this really what I want to do? Am I making a positive improvement in our students' lives and helping them? Because one of my first things, this is 
so corny too, going back at it, but I am proud of myself for saying this, was I would tell my students, I don't care if you leave my class learning how to read or write, but how to be good people. Mm, yeah. Oh, man. And so That's we so spent important. a lot of time doing oh, culture gosh. work, right? And about learning how to build ourselves up a classroom culture and to love each other and respect each other. And we let reading and writing become secondary nature. So another thing I would go back to tell myself was do start with content day one, but embed it with these culture moves that I was looking for. So I kind of saw content and culture work as separate when I could have instead, hey, let's dive into this literature together and pull out what are these themes we're seeing about work group work what's working with group work what's not working hey let's read this and to, to uncover what should our classroom rules be you know yeah um, yeah instead of like hey we're gonna not do content for two weeks we're gonna build up culture and learn rules and learn our classroom processes and procedures i see a lot of that in my own kids where teachers and we live in a high-performing school district and yet i do see sometimes teachers will treat classroom culture as a 15-minute lesson mm -hmm. perhaps a list of classroom rules. They might even invite kids to help generate the rules, which is a good step forward, but I don't see it as embedded in the overall day-to-day -day practice, which I think is pretty interesting. And I bet that's part of the reason you transitioned into coaching. Yes. So what was that like? You, you went from being a teacher, mm -hmm. performing exceptionally well for that one hour you were observed, <laughs> but you know, honestly, you were doing really well. Mm -hmm. How did the opportunity to come up to become a coach? Yeah, so in North Carolina, they are like number 48th in teacher pay. So, and you also don't have to have a college degree in teaching to become a teacher here. You have to have a bachelor's degree in something and take a six week boot camp over the summer where you teach summer school students. So it gives you a false sense of ability mm. when you go into a real classroom with real students. So, as a teacher, my fellow teachers were like that, very much like that first year teacher I told you about who just struggled. I mean, we'd hear pounding on the walls again. So the school I transitioned out of was another school in Charlotte, North Carolina now. And this school, high poverty school where, and there was a lot of crime happening on within the school. And so the year I began it, a principal actually was just hired to take over and to turn around the school. So it was a turnaround initiative. So they wiped the whole administration team, put new administration team in, hired a slew of teachers. I was their very last hire of the school year and I was going to teach sixth grade now. And from, so from those first years, I would have brand new teachers or young teachers come in and just call you crying on the phone. Like I'd be teaching, pick up my phone and I just hear craziness in the background. It's like, they won't do anything I say. <laughs> Juxtaposed with very old school teachers who had been there for many years, who relied on some disempowering tactics to get kids to follow along, listen and behave and build culture along the way, but very strict. Yeah. Um, which, which ended up being very disparate practices. So as they slowly left through a change in administration as often happens. So after three, four years, administration changed, new administration came in, a whole bunch of new hires came in. I started supporting them in classroom management because it was, it was a struggle. We had high turnover every year, about 25 to 50% of the staff would be turned over wow, every that's single year. That's intense. And that's intense on those kids. But let me just observe something, which is, this is a pattern for you. Middle school, high school, you started collecting kids who needed help. 
and you used a formulaic approach to, you know, help them through literacy issues, reading, writing. Here you are after a few years in teaching, you've gone through your own bumps in the road. And it sounds like you're collecting young teachers and giving them formulas for how to build culture in your classroom. So yeah, you really were destined for this work. I have oh, to say, it's pretty that's clear. That's interesting that you pulled that out, but that's so true. Now that I think back is, yeah, I created a lot of spreadsheets and documents and guides for them to think through and fill out to help support the launch of the school year. Um, and that's what got me into what's called the Opportunity Classroom, multi-classroom or Opportunity Cultures, multi-classroom leader position. So okay. basically what that means is a school, they have certain ADMs, so these positions that they can use. And you can cash in a few positions and change them and pay somebody more. So to be a multi-classroom one, you, I don't know the exact number, but they change these ADMs for a 0.5 and a 0.1. It's an ADM. We're going to have to Google it. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, education it's, loves its acronym. It takes up an X amount of ADMs. A okay, teacher all right. Position. Got it. A TA takes an amount of X of ADMs. So multi-classroom leader basically meant we could take a teacher position away. You get a teacher position plus a half. And now on top of your salary, you're going to get $13,000 more a year. But your job, now that you don't have a classroom, now we've increased class, class sizes amongst the three other teachers on your team. You now are going to coach those three teachers. You're going to do the lesson planning, coaching, run the PLC mm -hmm. meetings, data meetings, and do small groups to help reduce those class sizes. So I was given that opportunity for sixth grade. My first year, I failed miserably. Worst year in my career and any career or job I've ever had was that year. Then I figured it out, right, by second year. Then I moved into the, the same position idea, but as a real-time teacher coach. Okay, so, so we'll come back to the, the role as pure coach, but this is the first time I've heard you say failed miserably because you were really... Like we've talked about, you were doing well collecting yeah. kids your own age. Then you were really rocking and rolling your first year, even compared to that other one who was more seasoned. So now you're in this new role supporting three teachers. Mm -hmm. And I bet you knew how to pronounce all their names. I did. I bet, you know, you had some of the basics down that you didn't have your first day as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I have to ask what happened. Yeah. And so I had a big old head. Oh, interesting. And that year when they had this position, they made one for sixth grade ELA in math, sixth, seventh grade ELA in math, eighth grade ELA math and science. So all of the um, tested subjects, which we in North Carolina, they're called end of grade assessments. Okay. So there was six of us, seven of us. And so I had a lot of confidence in my ability and what I'm doing. And I had a new lady came in to support eighth grade and she seemed very nervous. Um, and she was questioning everything, which I should also have been. And I didn't. I made some cultural fumbles at the beginning by telling my new, so I had three te teachers that were new to the school, but not new to teaching. Okay. And so I had a lot of assumptions as being my first year out of the classroom, not knowing that not every teacher could teach or manage a classroom or build relationships or have the same expectations that I did. So this is one of my first times seeing other people teach. So at the beginning, we're just like, let's launch. You do what you do. I'm here to support you. Then I made this huge error. I said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> so you told them. Yes. 
Yes, oh, yeah. that's what I do. And one of them actually had applied to do my position. I didn't know this. Oh, wow. They didn't get it, but they put her as a teacher. And so here comes the per position in pers that position that you wanted saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but we're going to figure this out together. Okay, guys. So you were, which let me just help me understand the mindset. Cause I found, I found myself in this position many times of being highly confident and not having a clue what I'm doing. And I don't know why, but there are certain situations that have worked out fine uh, and others where I've completely fumbled. And I think back to when I was, I think I was 27 or so, and I was called on to present at a board of directors meeting for a client of ours, publicly traded company, very big organization. And I walked in as if I knew exactly what I was doing. And, you know, for the most part, I had good subject matter knowledge. As far as they knew, this young kid was, a, you know, firecracker, smart. Mm -hmm. I honestly was so out of my depth. It was unbelievable. And I was really strong and then faded pretty quick in the meeting. Luckily, I had some colleagues there to prop me up. But it's funny how you can be like confident. Here you are. They've reallocated ADMs. Mm -hmm. They're paying you more. They said, you're just, you're amazing. Go make these other teachers amazing. Great. You're probably so confident that you're able to tell people you don't know what you're doing. And then it starts to crumble. Mm -hmm. So how did you, how did you recover from that? I tried to start to, to tell them what to do, but I had already ruined the relationship at that point and I lacked the confidence to get it back. Yeah. So I then out of the three teachers, I could get to two very well, but that third was very influential. And so that third would be able to, to get under the other two. So I just spent my time kind of working on the other two and having uh, my meetings with the third, very, very formal, but Looking back now, the other thing I tell people the first year they move out of their classroom, two things. The most important one to me is when you're in the classroom, you constantly have affirmations blown your way all day long. By the end of the day, you know how many students learned or didn't learn. You knew your impact right then and there. When you move out of the classroom, you don't have that for until the end of the great assessments at the end of the year. So there's this weird feeling you don't understand what you're feeling when you go through. And it's because you're not getting affirmation. Nobody now tells you you're doing great. Keep going. Right. And now you have to tell your teachers that that's your job to tell them. I mean, think about how many people really go to tell the principal or the assistant principal and give them daily affirmations. It doesn't happen. Like when you're in a classroom with your students. So the first thing I would have told myself or tell other people move out of the classroom is get used to this feeling and now what I could have done and what I started to do was create a daily goal. So not just a to-do list, but a daily goal. And every day when I met that daily goal, I would look at it and check it and I would feel that, okay, you're good. Right. Doing so this, this made up for the fact that when you're in a classroom, kids are looking back at you and you can tell from their body language, from all manner of cues. Yes, they're picking up what I'm putting down mm -hmm. or they're not. Mm -hmm. Step out of the classroom, you have teachers some of whom make lousy students. So you're not exactly sure if you're having an impact. Right. But now you're, you're filling that gap in with a daily goal. What, what was one of your daily goals? Give me um, it, yeah, it could be anything from whereas, you know, create kind of like a to-do list. So create the next three assessments um, online, take them um, and annotate them fully. So I could be like, yes, I've 
I've been able to do that up to go and spend 15 minutes with each of my teachers at lunch and just talk about life. Just little things to, that I could check off almost to give myself like a mini assessment every day. Did you do that? Did you do that? Well, what could be improved? Because if you weren't, aren't cognizant of thinking about it and more treat it as a to-do list, you're going to feel this, this weird inexplicable feeling of being a failure. You're just kind of like kind of wheels in the mud. It feels like where you're not making progress. You're not making a difference. You're coaching your teachers, but you see when you coach individuals and train individuals, their growth is really slow. So you have to set yourself these small goals to meet. So you can see like being up in the balcony, looking at the forest, you are making moves instead of being one amongst the trees. I feel like you can game that system a little bit though. I mean, I have to be honest and I'm not alone. I'm sure of, making your to-do list and including things that you've already done just for the satisfaction of crossing them off. Come on. We've all done that. Yeah. And but yeah. So these goals are for you or for them or, or for what are you me, it was for me to feel that I was efficient to that. I was making a difference that I was worth that 13,000 extra dollars a year. <laughs> um, That's, that was on your mind consciously. And then, the, and they would tell you it's on your mind. Oh, he knew what these positions meant. And we hadn't gotten raises in years. Um, so and 13 is a big step for a teacher at any level. I don't care if you've been teaching forever. 13 is a big step. Yeah. So yeah. I could see why that would sit with you. And now you're doing it virtually. Now you're, you know, yeah. you and I are exchanging this dialogue via our homes because we're all virtual all the time. So how's that going for you? And, and I don't mean simply just as a coach, but as an educator, as a colleague. Yeah. It must be really flipping hard right now to be a teacher. So I don't want to say this wrong. It is very, 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 very difficult to be a teacher in how you used to teach. Very difficult if you're holding on to that. Or one thing we're really great at here in Charlotte is holding our breath. We're holding our breath since March for kids to come back into the building to then yeah. teach again. And this is the philosophy that I'm working really hard with my coaches and my teachers and my principals to break down. We can't hold our breath. Literally, my children are in your classes. Other people's children are in your classes. So we can't like wait to get good at it until kids come back. And I don't want to seem uncaring. I want to seem like it's okay now to do something new and different and be okay with it being new and different. We don't need to hold on to what was and try to turn what was virtual. Instead, let's learn to be strong remote instructors who still embed pedagogy, still embed the joy factor into your lesson. Instead of trying to rely on the ways of doing things, a big pushback I'm getting with teachers is, well, in my classroom, I could look and see at everybody's paper and now I can't. So I'm struggling, you know, and, and then it's putting out, okay, let's look online. What features can we use online to see everybody doing work? And one thing is a teaching, telling a teacher as simple as let's go ahead and you know what your screen looks like right now. Open up gallery mold and pull it wide. And as students are working, click through and you'll see which students are working and which ones aren't. We might not see what there was on their papers to the end, or we could do things to help you see what's on their paper now if you really wanna do something with it, right? So it's helping teachers like stop, take a deep breath, let's do new. Yeah, and that has new. been the yeah. hardest break of is, is encouraging people who aren't new to teaching to do new. Surprisingly, teachers, brand new baby teachers this year 
are doing very well. Yeah, they don't have to unlearn an awful lot or let go really is, is what I'm hearing a lot of. And a lot of yeah. us have had to let go. Yeah. And they don't see if kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Why do, so we, have, why do we have such a hard time with that as teachers? Why do we have a hard time letting go of our practices? Is, and, and let me ask, is it because for so long teachers were just given four walls, a door and said, go get them? So does that make it harder to let go or what's happening there? Because you either have learned in your teaching career, at least where I'm at, that you can, therefore go and do, or you can't, therefore let me hold your hand and put you on a plan. So when people start struggling in a lot of schools, they actually get penalized for asking for help. It now will go on your, your end of year right. observations, evaluations. It could impact how you, your jobs is, and so it, jobs are, so it really depends on your principal and your culture in your school. That's why if you have a school that has a culture of coaching, you will find more teachers okay with asking for help and therefore receiving help. I am in a school right now that is not, you does not, didn't have a culture of coaching last year. So when we said, let's sign up for this, this is to support you only. You know, it won't be a value to have anything we're doing during this coaching won't be on your end of your evaluation. Nothing. Six people signed up. Six. That's Six. it. Because they were still, they, were, they couldn't let go of that old mindset of if you ask for help, you'll actually get penalized for it. But then you do a survey and ask how many of you want help? A hundred. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everyone wants help. Yeah. Here's the avenue to get help. And no. So it's an idea of coaching versus evaluation. And because I'm being coached, that still means I'm good, right? Yes, that still means you're good. I don't see really any other profession where you don't get feedback as much yeah. as you should. In teaching, you don't get feedback on your practice. And, but, and I, get, I got to imagine it's harder than ever to get feedback. I mean, here, I, my kids are outside of my office here at home. <laughs> it's amazing to see the lack of engagement they have. The posture is really the thing that I notice their heads are down, their shoulders slumped. And I think it's because in our district, much respect to all the work they're doing, but I think they're trying to smash a traditional school day into an entirely untraditional model. And it's hurting everybody. It's hurting teachers uh, who have this kind of fait accompli, like it is what it is. So we'll just do our best until we come back, like you're saying. Hold our breath. It's hurting, it's hurting students because they're just like, you know what, the two days that I'm home, I don't have to pay attention. The two days I'm in school behind a mask, I only sort of have to sh pretend to pay attention. And it's, it's frustrating as hell to see it on both sides. It's frustrating to see how teachers are struggling. It's frustrating as a parent. And I'm just not sure why we have such a hard time letting go of all these things. Where do you go from here? I mean, for you as an educator, as a coach, what are you hoping to get out of this next school year? Let's flip it back. Right now we have people who, quote unquote, I can't take another thing or I'm going to explode as teachers. Yeah, we hear that all the time. We all the time. All the time. In fact, time. It's, it's, been, it's been a leading blocker, I think, for teachers um, and also for the people surrounding them to say, well, we can't give teachers yet yes. one more thing yeah. to do. And, uh, and I'm hearing you say something a little differently, which is actually yes. we can give them something to do because it's not adding on, it's changing what it's replacing it, an ineffective practice. Man, we don't talk about that enough. That's interesting. Yes. Let, let's just, I want to stamp that because, and I do it all the time. Well, you know, 
we don't want to ask a teacher for extra help. It's one more thing, or we don't want to, you know, give them a, a new application, a new assessment, you know, some other tool. But man, what you're talking about is just saying, actually, what we're doing is we're not adding a layer of practice. We're changing, we're swapping out an existing practice for something new that's calibrated for this environment. And, and that's not, you know, we're talking about virtual learning, but actually that idea of replacing a practice is applied all the time. It's applied in, you know, understanding the whole child, for example. So think back to when you were a kid up in New York, they, they were not doing whole child instruction. No. They were not looking at the context of the child and saying, this kid's from North Carolina, living with her dad, uh, and has red hair. The, those are three pretty uh, basically transparent, you know, surface level observations. But there wasn't a lot of whole child going on. It's kind of interesting because I think in North Carolina, where you are, whole child and MTSS uh, supports yes. are really present. But that really wasn't about, you know, adding to a teacher's practice. It was really about changing the mm -hmm. practice. So if you're talking about the context of a child, the whole child, or teaching virtually, it really is just about changing the practice. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. And I, we don't, you're going to, you're going to compel me mm -hmm. to start thinking differently about We've you know, got the way we, the way we treat teachers. We've Sometimes we, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Powering mindset around teachers that they're going to quit. I mean, that's, that's it. I'm just going to say it. So yeah. if I push too hard, they're going to quit. And then what am I going to do with these students? They're going to have to go to someone else's class. I'm going to have to sub. I'm going to have a lot more work to do in, 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 not, in all cases, right? In all states, that can't happen that way. Um, but they could retire early. There could be scenarios. So what I suggest instead is buying, having the teacher buy into the practice by having them choose which behaviors are happening that you want to replace, supporting them to, and then it'll actually take that plate off of them right? It'll remove a plate from the table that they're in front of in two weeks. It's done. So now they can free up and juggle a little bit more and then we can look and refine again and again and again and again. But what we can't do is be afraid that a teacher is going to quit because that teacher may or may not quit, but one day they might find themselves in front of kids again. So we owe it to our right. kids, right. right? We owe it to our kids to make sure that Whatever state you're in, whatever level of education you've received, whatever training you've had, that you still are going to receive coaching and support. And that's something that I stand by thoroughly is a teacher needs at least every single teacher needs at least once a month, a very strong coaching session where we're looking at work that they're doing, determining what they want to work on, supporting them through, and then following up to see how has that gone. So that way they can continue to evolve and grow as in everybody does in every other profession. And the first few times I was coaching teachers this year, they looked at it as another thing and they were being polite because I'm a district employee. So they're like, I have to do it, Miss Lady District. <laughs> so I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to go through. And let me tell you, virtually is you could just see this relief coming off the teacher's shoulders as I'm in the middle of this real-time coaching session, mm -hmm. right? One teacher, her struggle was, you know, students sitting up. All right, you want to do the sitting up? Fine, we'll do the sitting up. So we just practice with her how to give directions, you know, how to use these other strategies, like narrating students to sit up. In one minute, two minutes of me help, you know, typing in little cues to her, 100% of her class was sitting up. And she's right. like, 
Right. Look, now I had to tell her to calm down because she's like, finally, everybody's sitting up. Like, no, you're yeah. about to ruin your whole culture. Don't do that. Right. If you hold the expectation that they can do it. You yourself put in the work to get them to do it. Build the relationship. Students will do it. So don't be surprised when they do it because then that tells me you never thought they could in the first place. Right. So that's where I foresee this traveling next is to people have to realize right now in education, we've now found a way that works. So if there's snow days, you know, I know people are talking about don't take away the snow days, but let's just, let's just be real here. If there's hurricane days as we have sometimes mm -hmm. here, now students can still not miss education and be online. So just to pretend if we go back to normal sometime this school year, and I say that in bunny ears, normal. Yeah. If we go back to normal, there's a hot chance that we're going to come back out of the classroom again. So this idea of holding the breath and waiting to kids are in class to figure it out isn't going to work. Right, because we're just going to be a year. Right, we're going to be holding our breath when we go back in the classroom. And then waiting. complaining that these students are going to lose out on a year of education. Well, we're not looking at our school leaders, who I'm not judging in any way. I am seeing by facts. Our school leaders aren't pushing enough because, like you're saying, we need to nurture the whole child. We need to nurture the whole teacher, the whole school. The social emotional learning needs have to be met. But going back to the advice I gave myself the first year teaching is how can we do this through pushing content, mm. through pushing high expectations? But that means us ourselves as district leaders, administrators, how do we support our teachers in seeing that they need at least once a month coaching support so that way they can feel that taken off their shoulders, that we can adapt and replace ineffective behaviors that are happening in the classroom because they have never taught this. So it's really unfair that school has expected them to go in and teach this without any sort of thing beyond a two to six hour professional development. And that's it. Right. right. Course is what we got here. Yeah. You know, $13,000 is a small price to pay for a highly effective workforce. I have to say that's a pretty good investment. So it was your grandfather who was a history teacher, yes. one of seven kids who was perhaps pointed in the direction of a coal mine. But yeah. something in his parents said, nope, this guy's going to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. He went on to be a teacher. And I, I have to think if he were able to hear us today, how proud he would be of his granddaughter and the impact that she's had with her kids, starting with Jamea. Jamea. Jamea, see? I, I hesitated there, starting with Jamea, all the way through to the yeah. teachers that you're, that you're coaching now. I mean, it has been... It's been such a treat to learn about your journey because I think it's, you know, it's, it's unique to you, but in some ways it's going to feel very familiar to a lot of teachers out there right now who I think should take hope in what you've been able to accomplish. So thank you for sharing. I really appreciate, I really appreciate this time. And now, as is the case with all of these discussions, you know, I'm here to question everything, but I invite all my guests to offer a question in return. So Okay. Do you have a question for me? I do. I okay. do. I'm so excited to ask this question. Okay. So Jim, you know, working in for first with the managing partner for step advisors, yeah. um, the influence that you're having around and your influence of having people take seats at the table. My question is, is what um, strategies do you have in place to ensure a more diverse opportunities for other individuals to be able to have a seat at these tables like you've given me or allowed me to be a part of? That's a good question. 
And as listeners hopefully will know or appreciate, uh, this question was not, this is new to me. So I'm hearing this for the first time. So, uh, but that's, that's the point. If I'm going to question everything, I should allow folks to question me in turn. So what's interesting is, you know, my profile is as of a cisgender white man who enjoyed a lot of privilege growing up in a white bubble in upstate New York, going to a high quality, very expensive school um, and graduating with no debt. That's incredible. So I, I didn't appreciate until many years later, the opportunities that afforded me to live in a certain way, mainly to live without the uh, oppression of debt, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think was, was pretty amazing. So as I've gotten older, I've really started to think about what, what veneer have I created that is absent of character. So the veneer of someone who is capable, articulate, that kid walking into a board meeting of a publicly traded company, I got to tell you, I have to think it was a lot because I was able to do what I wanted without the oppression of debt. And I was a white male. You cannot tell me that that board of directors would have invited a 27 year old black woman in to be the industry expert. Took me a long time to realize that because back then I just thought, look at me, I'm really smart. And I got this. What I didn't appreciate was, was the reality is I'm really smart and I'm here because I'm white, I'm a guy and I didn't have any debt. It's amazing, kind of privilege that too few have. So anyway, all that is context for as I get older, I start to appreciate all the different ways in which people who don't look like me have been oppressed systemically and culturally in our workplaces, uh, in our education systems. As I started to understand the privilege of my background and the, the benefits that I've enjoyed, I've come to understand I have a responsibility to be cognizant of my voice. So I can use my voice to further the goals of Jim McVetty and his white privilege, or I can harness that energy into creating advantage or at least awareness among others. So how did that manifest itself? I started writing a lot more. So on LinkedIn, for example, where I have a decent following among my little cottage industry, I've been very clear talking about Black Lives Matter just recently in a multiple posts publicly so that folks knew, first off, there are white men who care about this issue. Also to model that it's okay to talk about it publicly without implications. But then I had to go a step further and start talking about it privately. So I even wrote a post without naming names, calling out white male CEOs and their lack of uh, public support for Black Lives Matter. And so those conversations were fascinating and disturbing at times, um, but ultimately came through to a a good place. More recently, I've posted about misogyny. It's not the same as racism, and yet it falls in that category of oppression. And I've just noticed that racism can be very subtle and systems-based, almost to the point of being uh, invisible unless you shine a light on it. And so too is the role of sexism and misogyny, where the confidence and the casual comfort we have in just using sexism in our language when we say hey guys mm-hmm. or when we do a you know a wink and a raised eyebrow from one guy to another it's it's disturbing as it is epidemic so i guess the first phase of this effort i'm undertaking is is already well underway which is really trying to be more self-aware the second phase then is using that voice and i like to think the third phase will be well, i guess i don't know what the third phase will be sam but 
I'm thinking about more and more, how do I surround myself uh, with people who aren't like me, whether that's through hiring or through, you know, helping my clients hire. I feel like given the choice, I'm going to make the choice to add more color and texture to the tapestry that is my life. Otherwise, I think I'll regret not taking advantage of that opportunity. So let me unpack this a little bit further. Talking about race with a colleague, an African-American woman, a black woman, I kept leading my statements with apologies, like saying, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right thing to say. And she finally said, Jim, you have to stop because you know what the right thing to say is. So you have to stop equivocating and apologizing in advance of talking about these issues and just talk about the issues, mm-hmm. which was a, an important moment for me. And I think it's going to be a long time before a lot of folks get there, but I'll use what voice I can to get them there. So I hope that answers your question. It was a good one, one that I've internalized quite a bit. And, and to be honest, it's the first time I've perhaps vocalized it as much. So I appreciate you asking it. That's a good answer. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm not, I don't only bring the questions, I bring the answers. <laughs> yeah. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it at least until the next podcast. Yes. Yeah. Really enjoyed the time. Let me say this. It's amazing to watch you work and to watch you think about your own practice from your journey as a kid struggling in third and fourth grade to becoming a caretaker of your peers and then carrying that destiny through to fruition, become a teacher and helping other early stage teachers. I am just so excited to track your progress from this point forward. And it's a real privilege to know you. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's so kind. I'm I'm grateful to be here to be able to share a story. You know, sometimes in the education field, we're always pushed to become principals, right? And that's what was pushed for me. And that's where I actually veered away from. And so it's, it's been really enjoyable to find a career that I love and that I can do and be able to be a part of. So I appreciate you um, very much for allowing me to share this with others as well. Thank you for listening to Jim Questions Everything.